0: you are listening to a writers at stanton podcast every month stanton library hosts some of the world's most exciting writers and thinkers to discuss their latest books thank you for joining us
1: Uh, ladies and gentlemen on behalf of north sydney council and the constant reader bookshop Welcome to the Library and to the Writers at Stanton program. Uh, before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of these lands in which we meet and to pay our respects to the spirits and ancestors, past, present and future. And my name is Amanda Hudson and I'm Council's Community Development Librarian. Today I have the pleasure of introducing North Sydney Council's historian Ian Hoskins to talk about his book, Sydney Harbour, A History. Originally published in 2009, this book won the Queensland Premier's Literary Prize for History in 2010. Ian says, in this book I've tried to present a sweeping history of one of the world's most recognised places from the days of the Harbour Clans to the demise of the working waterway in the 21st century, while acknowledging the intimate relationships that make this such a special place. Ian Hoskins is an academic and public historian who has been based in Sydney for over 25 years. Ian is extremely passionate about history. His interest is said to have begun due to his doctoral work at Sydney University from his study of public parks and gardens and the development of floral nationalism in town planning movements of Sydney. So please join me in welcoming Ian Hoskins.
0: Thank you Amanda, thanks everyone for coming out. Hello Ted, <laughs> nice to see you. <laughs> um, can you see if I'm, I'm, I'll bring this back. You don't need to see me, you just need to see the pictures. Um, yeah, so this is the second second proper edition of the Harbour book. The other one came out and had three print runs and did did well in 2009 and wherever else came out and paperback and was a larger, almost a picture book size, beautifully designed with lots of illustrations, I forget how many. And I, um, and then went out of print, and people would ask me, is your, where can we get your book? And oh, it's out of print, you'll you get it online. Someone actually showed me one once that had been ripped off, and she ordered it, and I don't know whether you know of this business model, but in America, or China, or wherever it is, people print off books and do a really shoddy job without the illustrations, and you end up buying it, thinking that you're getting the original book. And she said, "This here's a copy of your book. Would you like to sign it? <laughs> I've never seen that before. You know, it was, yeah, a bit startling. So I badgered the publisher to, to reprint and they were a bit hesitant. And then I pitched the idea that how about we wait till the dust settles on the controversy at Barangaroo. And I realised the dust from construction hasn't settled yet. I mean, if it ever will. Um, but the dust on the... Casino um, was (laughs) still very much in the air when I pitched and and realised that it would be settling in 2022, and they bought that. And and so I wrote an extra bit about Barangaroo, and I'll talk about Barangaroo towards the end. Um, One of my friends who read it said, that's a very angry chapter. (laughs) So I may do a reading. If we have time enough, I'll do a reading. When I gave a talk when the book came out originally, so 2009, however many years ago that is, I I spoke rather too long and everyone, time for questions and everyone just sat there stunned because I'd gone through all the pictures in the book and this happened then and look at this one. And so I'll try not to do that. I'll try not to subject you to that. I apologise if you were here in 2009 and endured that. But what I will do is use the pictures that have been Um, retain for for this new edition, and I'll talk to those, and I won't cover everything that that I have written about in the book. I'm not going to be talking about defence too much today, but by all means ask questions about that, um, and we'll see how we go. So there's a cover of it anyway. Beautiful. I originally had that beautiful David Moore Photograph, aerial photograph of Sydney Harbour. That's in the original edition. And it cost so much to reproduce each time that I, I found this one <laughs> and put it in, which didn't cost anything. It's in our collection, actually. But it makes the same point, that this is an extraordinary waterway with all these coves, a myriad of coves. I should know how many, and I can't tell you off the top of my head. Um, I quote Kenneth Slesser, a book I picked up. I picked up so many books in second-hand shops on the harbour. And this was a very obscure one, uh, and it had a introduction by Kenneth Lester, 1963, and he referred to Sydney Harbour, which he loved, um, as a vague kind of Venice. And I thought that was so beautiful because, and and keep that in mind, that Venice, because I'm going to come up with a picture and. refer to that again so all the ferries are the same as the the boats that go along the canals in Venice if you've ever been to Venice you get this sense of a very active vibrant waterway I've I've been to Venice once I'm so grateful and it never stops and in 1963 that's what Sydney Harbour was like less so now because there are far fewer ferries and even fewer working vessels so it's a very different waterway on the weekend it's pretty busy around Clark and Shark Island you get boats whizzing around everywhere um, I remember going out in a canoe once and there are there are sailing boats that go up on the keel these days I don't know what they're called, they're really fast well they're, they're a hydrofall sailing boat yeah. oh ok, yeah, it's a hydrofall, of course it is and they were just going everywhere anyway I survived that so there's, there's the harbour formed about 6,000 years ago between 10 and 6,000 years ago when there was a river valley um, freshwater stream still out at Parramatta over however many millions of years, cut through sandstone. Sydney is built on sandstone. I'm sure you all know that. Um, so the main channel, um, the stream, was cut by that river. And there was another one, Lane Cove. The Lane Cove River cuts, cuts there. And another unnamed waterway, still unnamed, correct me if I'm wrong, comes in from um, down through Middle Harbour. And so we have these three, three arms, if you like, that create this waterway. Well, once the glaciers start melting between, as I said, between 10 and 6,000 years ago, the that valley fills up. And so it's a fairly recent landscape and waterscape, if you like. That's really recent. Geologically, it's a blink of an eye. These people, Aboriginal people, were almost... Well, we know they were here before that the harbour was here, OK? So they would have been living... In a river valley, Aboriginal people were down in Tasmania 25,000 years ago, at least. So 65,000 years ago, at the top end of Australia, 25,000 years ago in Tasmania, they've got to be in the in this area, um, somewhere in between that. The coast before that glacial um, melt and the sea level rise was, you know, 10 kilometres to the east, if you can imagine that. So they would have adapted and receded, retreated rather, and um, come to live around the harbour. So seven clans were were recognised by um, the Europeans when they rocked up in 1788 and were avidly writing everything down in journals Um, Watkin Tench Dawes, you you know those um, Surgeon John White and Thomas Watling was a convict artist who did one of the most sensitive drawings of a woman called Daringa I'm not quite sure what clan she belonged to Um, Colby came from Botany Bay People didn't marry within their clans, so she wasn't from Botany Bay, we know that much. Um, But I'm not sure whereabouts in the harbour we've shown. But it's such a humane picture. Some of the other paintings you'll see of Aboriginal people at this time are of stick figures. And that's sometimes interpreted as a, a... What's the word? Um derogatory thank you that's the one I was after and it's not because that artist or there is a series of artists within the cohort of convicts um, were just amateur artists it's naive art and the general heading for that is that the name that's given to that person or persons is the Port Jackson artist and you'll see that European people who are depicted as stick figures as well Um, but this one Watling obviously could draw so there's Daringa. Seven clans, each with maybe 100 to 200 people, typically for an oral culture, like without the written word, that's that's your ideal size, so you know, you know the people within your um, family group and you can communicate orally and, yeah, so it, it fits with patterns elsewhere in the world, which means that there was about a thousand people, or maybe a bit less, around the harbour, which is what um, Governor Phillip when he rolled up in 1788 estimated so he he got that about right so they trod lightly on the land there were just not that many people here they really did both spiritually and literally with only that many people going from ho- cove to cove to get um, seafood those colonial accounts emphasised how much seafood they ate <laughs> they, they, they weren't after possums and wallabies and things that happened to the west at at Parramatta, West Parramatta, um, but these people they refer to as coast people or sea people, um, so shellfish um, men typically with what we call fizz gigs, which are the multi pronged spear, spearing fish, and this is one of um, our local engravings, people are probably familiar with this at Ball's Head, it's still there a little less obvious now, makes me wonder, given it was so obvious um, in 1900 when this photograph was taken, and it's even a little bit hard to, to make out these days how old it was. It may not have been that old when this photograph was taken because, it, because it's clearly um, faded, if that's the right term. Sandstone is a very soft stone, so great for carving, great for turning into blocks for buildings, but, you know, it, it weathers too. Um, and open to interpretation what this represents, in the book I I, um, I quote a chap called Jerry Bostock who is a Bundjalung man from north northern New South Wales, a coast coast guy, um, saltwater person, as they refer to themselves, um, and he said, that's a whale. And the guy in the middle, if i got a little there, is a clever fella, a gadaichi man, or a gomera as they were known around Sydney, and he is singing the whale into Sydney Harbour. And once a whale is in that myriad... Waterway. there's a chance it might beach itself and get disorientated. And if it beaches itself and dies, there's two weeks of free animal protein for the tribes. And that happened in the first two years, three years, of um, European colonisation. It happened at at, um, Manly. And that's when Philip was invited over to feast on, you know, a putrefying whale, which he did. He felt um, obliged to do that. And that's when he was speared in the shoulder, um which was possibly a payback spearing, but you may have heard about that when at school or read about it subsequently. And there's Benelong, who's, you know, the most famous of those people and became um, the mediator between the the British and and the and the clans, and after whom Benelong point is name because Philip built him a sandstone house there. He's a Wongle man. So his territory was from Tumbalong, Darling Harbour, all the way west to what we know as Parramatta. So he is living in a house on Gadigal land, if it's on present-day Bennelong Point, which, in my mind, suggests how everything was turned upside down because territory and protocol and territory was so important to Aboriginal people, and yet within five years of Europeans rocking up and just saying, well, we're going to be here forever at, at Sydney Cove, a Wongle man can live in Gadigal territory. You know, gee whiz, it's real upheaval. And there's Philip. 1786. So, <laughs> this is the imagined coast. You know, thank, uh, Francis Wheatley is just dreaming up a, a coastline where he, at the very beginning of, of conceiving this extraordinary project, this endeavour, um, sending eleven ships to the other side of the world, likened to a present-day moon trip. Um, yeah, that's what he. Francis Wheatley imagines Botany Bay to be, because that's where they were heading. They weren't going to Sydney Harbour. Going to Botany Bay based on rather elaborate descriptions from Joseph Banks and others is, yes, there's plenty of water, it's really good. It'll be a great place to put convicts. Initially, the, the, the plans were not just for a convict settlement. It was for a, um, a, a settlement of free people, and we can take women from the Pacific, and that'll be good because that'll stop unnatural <laughs> unions in this in this area and it'll mean that there's a growing population, you know, just simple as that, you know, just grab people from Pacific Islands. All that didn't happen and it distilled in the mind of Lord Sydney, after whom Sydney is named, as a place for convicts. But not a really sort of mean, punitive place as... Norfolk Island became, or Port Arthur became in Tasmania, but a place where people would serve out their 7 or 14 years and be given a chunk of land, and fingers crossed they won't ever come back. We don't want them back in the UK because the j- jails are overflowing. We don't need those people anyway. But we'll give them a second chance at life. All predicated on the idea that the land is belongs to no one. Terra Nullius. You, know, you just give them land everywhere. So despite the fact that Philip is well, there are people there and there's a 1,000 people in the harbour. How am I going to deal with this? You know, that's the, that's the thinking behind it. So there's... And we're still living with the consequences of that, of course, all discussions about compensation and recon, um, recognition of, of dispossession. All right. Now, I'm going to talk... I'm just going to jump through this thematically with some of the things that I found so interesting. There's amazing painting... Very unusual for John Lewin, who was known for his insects and birds, um, and here are fish. And this is probably Kirribilli. Really doubly unusual, too, because there's a hammerhead shark. Has anyone seen a hammerhead shark in the, in the harbour? Yeah? I'm, I'm, you, you have? In the aquarium. Yeah in, yeah, in the aquarium, but not in the harbour. You hear of bull sharks and others. But anyway, there's a hammerhead shark. So Jimmy didn't dream it up. But there's um, Snapper, well-known harbour. There's RAS. Um, Whiting, um, I think it's called red eye. Yeah, so I found that interesting because very little had been written about the, the fishermen, and they were mainly men of Sydney Harbour. Before I started researching this, so I had to delve into the to the primary record, um, and discovered that fishing was only ever a marginal industry in a in a harbour port um, colonised by. The British, you know, who, were, who were already trawling the North Sea um, and the Atlantic for uh, cod so that they knew how to fish, but coming down here the fish were a different species the, the um, ecology was different it was a very narrow, narrow continental shelf, so they weren't those huge schools of fish like you had in the Atlantic and the, and the North Sea, it was warm water, temperate water not cold water, that makes a difference I didn't realise that um, fish were fewer in warmer water than, than in colder water, especially with uprising nutrient spirals. So it was only ever marginal, which explains why things were so difficult in those first years when they tried to establish themselves. Crops aren't growing in sandy soil. Why don't they just fish? Well, they tried with sane nets and things, but um, it was harder than they imagined. It was, And it remained marginal throughout the 19th century. When I wrote the first book... I couldn't find a painting of a fishing boat and people fishing in Sydney Harbour. In between 2009 and last year, or earlier this year, I think I was finalising the pictures <laughs> earlier this year, um, I found that the, the State Library of New South Wales, what a treasure it is, mm-hmm. has had scanned so many more of their pictures and here is a Conrad Martins watercolour, which wasn't available to me online and I didn't have the time to delve through every every um, file and archive in the, in the state library, but here is a, here is a fishing boat with a seine net. Now, it's 1850s, but that would look very similar to the way that the people in the first fleet, they came out with no skilled fishermen. This was really just a, a, con, a, a convict endeavour. That William Bryant was, was a convict who was a fisherman as well, and as soon as he could, he headed out through the heads and up to Batavia with his wife, Mary. There's, that's a famous escape story there revelation to me also because it's a co- a convict settlement with no jail jail's not built until eighteen eighteen convict barracks in um, Macquarie street uh, a boat is the key to the to the door of that open air prison so if you could get a boat and head out you you 're off to China if you 're lucky or wherever and people were heading off whenever they could william Mary Bryant were the best-known example of that. So there was a restriction brought in by Philip on you can't build a boat bigger than 14 feet because that's too seaworthy and we can't go out. So there's a restriction on building boats in a harbour port and it lasted for some time. I found that really interesting. But you you can't stop commerce and capitalism and the, the convict port gains a momentum of its own as a commercial place. The Americans are coming in, the French are coming in. Canny convicts are being freed, having served their time. People like James Underwood and, um, what's his name? Simeon Lord are building boats or having boats built for them in Sydney Cove, building warehouses on the west side of Sydney Cove, where we're looking there, and sending boats... Even fleets down to the um, Bass Strait to deplete the the seal population down there and selling those seal pelts up to China and also sending those boats out to the Pacific, if you can imagine, to get sandalwood to sell into the Chinese market. So Sydney gets a momentum of its own. And this picture really just is almost like a taxonomic representation of all the the various craft... um, that were in Sydney in, in 1810. The, pay attention to this foreground. This is very typical of colonial paintings, darkened rocks and Aboriginal people in the foreground. And there it is again there, Aboriginal people in the foreground. It's an artistic convention of the time, and it it's almost... Metaf- well, it is metaphorical, actually, or allegorical, because what we're supposed to be understanding when we look at these pictures, up until about 1840, is here is original life in the in the harbor um, and the cycle of history sees civilization arising there and so there we've got the the township there interesting that they seem to be leaving the harbor to make way for the British yeah that's very handy um, and there's the you know heavenly sky above and you will see that three-part um, those bars, if you like, on so many paintings up until the, or, or drawings in fact, up until the 18, 1840 when there were very when, when the clans were completely um, turned on their head, there was no mention of those original clans the Gadigal and the Camaragel I've not found mention of Gamaragal who are our local people, after um, 1800 or thereabouts you can do keyword searches in the Sydney Gazette, which started in 1803 the name Camaragel or any variation thereof which was in that early colonial record is not there to be found so those clans don't exist as entities in themselves is what that suggests to me but other Aboriginal people have come together and regrouped and sorry let me flick forward and this is they, one of them on this side of the harbour regroup around this man Bungaree who's an astonishing person who comes down from either Karingau a bit further north than that maybe even as far north as Port Stephens comes down to Sydney Harbour, circumnavigates Australia with Matthew Flinders in The Investigator. So the first Aboriginal person to circumnavigate Australia. He He's offered a farm at George's Head by Macquarie, who wants to civilise the Aboriginal people, has no interest in farming, takes up a, um, at Kirribilli and with a group of people who I suspect have come from all sorts of groups and there is a wonderful picture which I don't have to show you today, but you can see in a picture in there, um, a drawing done by a Russian artist when he came out with one of the Russian expeditions in the 1820s, which show this group of people gathered around Bungaree at Kirribilli, living in a little um, uh, gunya humpy, uh, living a traditional life and and eating fish, because Kirribilli was known as a really great fishing spot. So here's here's Bungaree (laughs) welcoming people as they get off boats at Sydney Cove, saying, all that land over there, pointing to the North Shore, is mine. That's our land there. And to, and give me some money. <laughs> so they would give him a dump, of, you know, a, a coin. And he dressed in sort of cast-off admiral's kit. Now, you can... That is the most distinguished painting of Bungaree there is. Other ones show him as a dissolute drunk and are really quite derogatory. This is interesting because it's the first oil painting of an Aboriginal person, and he is an individual. He's not some guy just spearing fish off off there and look at the counterpart. Same artist Augustus Earl. Same year Captain John Piper is the richest man in the harbour so here is indigenous royalty and there is Augustus Earl and I don't think um, sorry there is Captain John Piper and I don't think Augustus Earl was trying to be ironic or unpleasant. I just think he was depicting these people as a as representatives of two types of the harbour I really do and here is Captain John Piper's beautiful Henrietta Villa which is at Point Piper today long gone unfortunately but was the most yeah, beautiful domed based on um, the, naval, the naval pavilion built for George IV who was then the Prince Regent at um, Brighton who subsequently turned it into this weird Indian fantasy palace um, that's it there that gives you an idea of how splendid it was. So the most magnificent house that you would see when you sailed into the harbour from 1818 through the 1830s or whatever. Oopsie, too many. So Macquarie was um, the, the governor who really started to build infrastructure for a harbour. And he was it was frowned upon. He's spending too much money. It's a penal colony. What are you doing? One of the things he thought was necessary for a harbour city was a lighthouse. You know, you would have thought... That was common sense, but anyway, he got scolded for building too much for spending too much on a lighthouse. There's the original Macquarie Lighthouse. The one that's out there now is based on this one. Um, this one, <laughs> the the sandstone that was used just weathered too much and it started to fall apart. So they replaced it with another that stood side by side by side for a while. In 1883, designed by James Barnett, who was then the government architect, but followed this one very closely. And through the 18... So up until... The, the, transportation ends in 1840. There's a big to-do in the harbour. We don't want any more convicts. You know, that's the end of that. The last vessel that comes in, the Hashimi, there are protests at, at what be, is soon to become um, Circular Quay. No, no, no more. After that, it's free people. After the discovery of gold in 1851, it's on for young and old, and the population of Sydney just exponentially grows. And I love this picture for um, what it depicts of immigrants arriving and how busy the harbour is. There's Government House, finished in 1845 by um, an architect in England called Edward Bloor, who never came here. That's important. Um, Jorn Utzen hadn't come here too when he designed the Opera House just just below there. There's Fort Macquarie, built by Governor Macquarie again, part of that infrastructure. That's where the Opera House is standing today. So look at that harbour. That's just amazing. In 18. what about date have I got there? 1853. God, they only rolled up in 1788. These are called bumboats. <laughs> At the time, they were called bumboats. You, know, you just row out. A, a type of... A boat called a wherry. Very shallow, very broad, very stable, therefore. And very good for rowing around sheltered waterways based on the design of um, a waterman's boat on the Thames. So there's technological transfer directly from the UK to here. Now, not all the boats got in safely. There's just what remains of the... Um, oh, I haven't got it there. Entrance to Port Jackson. That's the Dunbar. What a tragic painting this is. That was the year the Dunbar went down, and there is the Dunbar just outside the heads. The most famous wreck. It didn't make it into Sydney Harbour. He mistook that for the entrance to Sydney Harbour. Woo! Goodness, wrong button. Sorry. Fast forward. Yeah, there we are. That's you, you have to look carefully at the painting, but if you know what you're looking for, that's what it is. Just amazing. The, the I followed I, I tracked that through the newspapers when I was researching the, the book, and the the tragedy of the Dunbar unfolded for people in the harbour over two weeks. They would just keep finding more bodies on beaches, there would be dead cows floating in the water, there'd be a packing case full of something turning up the timbers from the Dunbar, the teak was a fine, fine vessel um, made from Burmese teak would be washing up and people would be gathering that and sort of building other things out of that, so it was a real cause celeb. There is a mass grave at St Stephen's Church in Newtown, if you want to go there and have a real 19th century Gothic experience, go to that, church, that, that graveyard around St Stephen's and there is the original where the um, gravesite where they buried dozens of people. Not sure why they did that in Newtown, but anyway, they did. Infrastructure, more infrastructure. How am I going for time? Blimey. Fitzroy Dock is still there at Cockatoo Island. Next time you go over for a concert, explore, <laughs> have a little explore and, and see the Sutherland Dock 1890, and this one which was finished in the, in the early 1850s. My theory is that it was built on Cockatoo Island to try and attract the Royal Navy permanently, because the Royal Navy didn't have a permanent presence in Sydney Harbour until uh, 1858. Fort Denison is only completed in 1857. The big fear is the Russians. People at the this far end of the empire are saying, what about us? You know, aren't we worth defending? Well, they weren't worth defending while it was a penal colony, but once you discover gold and there's lots of immigrants coming in, then it is. So a bit more money trickles down, so Fort Denison is finished, um, and then... This one is finished in the mid-1850s and you've got the Australia station at Garden Island, the permanent Royal Navy um, flotilla is stationed there from 1858 right through until we get our own navy in 1913. Before that, it was the India station that protected Sydney. Isn't that weird? Like, they're based in India. Um, There was another East Pacific station for the British at Valparaiso In South America but they just dealt with the East Pacific not the West Pacific it's a place for fun too by the end of the 19th century the colonists are very familiar with their harbour and I love this painting there's so much to see Um, there's the watermen picking or chipping um, oysters off, off the rocks to be eaten for this picnic there's bottles of champagne being opened this is a big painting and if it's on this it's still on display at the State Library yeah Go and see if it, see if you can find it. Where is it, Debbie? Just upstairs in the normal gallery. In the normal gallery. Go and find... Oh, they've got that huge gallery full of portraits and all sorts of things. So Go and find that because you can stand in front of it for half an hour and just see what all these different people are doing. There's a set of binoculars on one of them too. That's pretty interesting. So clearly sort of middle and upper middle class people enjoying Clark Island. But Clark Island and Shark Island became... Um, places of public recreation in 1879 among the first public reserves parks created around sydney harbor so if you had the means to go over there you could have a nice sort of oyster lunch now <laughs> the water that they're picking their oysters out of you know oysters really absorb all the muck enough you want clean water if you're going to eat the oysters is becoming pretty filthy by the end of the 19th century and this Imagine Bird's Eye View of Sydney gives you an idea of how filthy things are around Darling Harbour. All that grime, all this coal smoke coming up, boats would throw the ash off the... the um, out of the bunkers and things. So it increasingly, particularly to the west, was a really dirty harbour by the end of the 19th century, added to which... The Glebe Island Abattoir had been established in 1861. Glebe Island is now joined to the mainland, but it's where the Glebe Island Bridge is. By 1895, 1.2 million animals are being slaughtered at the Glebe Island Abattoir, such is our voracious appetite for red meat. Not for fish, but for red meat. So blood is being sluiced into the western waterway, Blackwattle Bay, so it's thick with red, the water there. Um, they take the heads and the guts on a punt and take it out past the heads but when the swell comes in <laughs> the heads and all that come back in so um, uh, literally uh, bullock's heads and, and bits of sheep are being found in Willamoo Bay and all the rest and, so, and Sydney siders get a, um, a dark humour about sharks because the winners from all of this are sharks and Sydney Harbour fills with sharks at the time and they pull one out of Woolloomooloo Bay. It's in the Illustrated Sydney News or something. And they open it up, and inside they find a waistcoat and a fob watch. <laughs> and no sign of the, the owner. So you know, presumably the owner was, was digested, and the waistcoat and the fob watch wasn't. And accompanying that article, I'm pretty sure it was the same one, was, that, was this illustration of a person swimming in Sydney Harbour with spiked bathing trunks because that's the best way to keep the sharks at bay. So th- there was a humour about that. And Mark Twain visited the harbour and acknowledged that at the, at the time, too. Thing to remember, the important thing. I'm going to run out of time, I can tell. Um, the East Harbour is the lovely, beautiful harbour. The West Harbour is where the industry is. There is a real dividing line. And it's about Neutral Bay, Woolloomooloo. So a little, little to the east of the, of the bridge. In the East Harbour, you've got look at this. That's at Elizabeth Bay. That's a real place. Isn't that amazing? Long gone. Look at that terraced lawn going down there with a the boathouse. And look what's there, a Venetian gondola. <laughs> there are you don't see it every time, but you see it often enough to realize it was the thing that even in the 19th century Sydney siders were looking at Sydney Harbour as an equivalent of Venice. So that's that's there. I've seen it on other illustrations. Clearly, there weren't Venetian, they really weren't Venetian gondolas. There were watermen, but they weren't punting you around like that. So that's a little um, bit of fun. But the, the house is real, and there are the architects. And in fact, Roe, no, Spain, Alfred Spain, lived in um, Neutral Bay. He built Gundamane. He designed Gundamane in, in Neutral Bay, still there. Wow, if only that was still there. <sighs> And it, but that's an accident <laughs> that there's an east and west because um, had they had their way they being industrialists and <laughs> um, merchants and whoever there would have been a coal mine at, at Cremorne Point there's coal under the whole harbour recognised um, it, it was known to be there from the 1840s they, there's a site for the bore that was put down in the spine of Cremorne Point still there at Cremorne Point little park there not one of mine predates me um, but that's due beaut. So yeah, great. We we need coal, and there's coal under the harbour. Let's let's do it here. And there was a local outcry, outcry rather, and it was defeated. The first time that I'm aware of that beauty trumps utility or commerce in Sydney Harbour. Already by this stage, Pinchgut has been cut to water level, even though it was regarded as a little beauty spot. Um, John Dunmore Lang, the the radical Presbyterian preacher was outraged when they cut that down in the 1840s and finally built a fort upon it. You can imagine a triangle of rock. It was a real sort of landmark in in the harbour. Anyway, um, (laughs) good (laughs) beauty wins over commerce in in Cremorne. And where did they put the coal mine? They weren't not going to have a coal mine, that's for sure. Where did they put that? Well, in grimy, working-class Balmain. So if you can believe it, and that was a revelation to me. I knew nothing about this before. People were descending down under the harbour, cutting coal right in through the 1930s from Balmain. Yeah, I think you can still see the entry point to that. It might be marked over in Birchgrove Balmain area. All right. This Sydney Harbour is one of the busiest ports in the Empire. By the end of the 19th century, there is plague in 1901. Plague because of the that you saw Darling Harbour, didn't you? So there are rats running up and down um, ropes and things like that. This is the response. This is the official response. Resume the rocks. Resume Miller's Point. Knock down all the bad wharves and the little hovely houses and built these butte finger wharves. State-of-the-art technology with cranes and all the rest of it. They're the finger wharves we look back on now and think, oh, was, there's the old harbour. Well, it was the absolute new harbour in 1915, thanks to... Um, John Henry Dean, who was the designer of it all. And you can see the other finger wharves at um, Piemont, gone, and the finger wharves in East Darling Harbour. Yes, there were finger wharves in East Darling Harbour, right until the 1960s. So there's the Western Harbour by the 1960s. It is intensely industrial, probably very filthy. There's the power, Piemont Power Station, where Star Casino is now, And there's a shift. There's a shift in sentiment, and one of the first shifts in sentiment is local. Harry Seidler comes to Australia in it's either 48 or 49 I always get it wrong to visit his parents, and he lands by aeroplane, out at mascot, and there's sand hills and really ugly buildings, and he thinks he's in hell. But then he drives to the harbor and sees this waterway, and it's the most magnificent waterway in the world. But what are they thinking? Because of all that industry that I just showed you, particularly in the West, Harry Seidler is appalled. He's approached, oddly enough, I still would love to see the original letter, by the Lavender Bay McMahon's Point Progress Association, <laughs> saying, Harry, help us. Um, there's plans for a cement works somewhere around here, and we really don't want that. We'd rather the whole area be zoned, rezoned, residential rather than commercial, because we don't want to live near factories anymore. And Harry comes up with this scheme, which is to <laughs> clear <fill laughs> Victorian McMahon's point and just build all these... W- you, the, uh, um, can you recognise those? They're, they're all Blues Point Towers. So I have counted them. I can't remember how many there are. And that one is a hotel, um, and there's all these maisonettes there. So this was welcomed at the time. It was published in the paper. This is a booklet we have in our collection, original booklet... Um, saying this is how things should go and we should do this at Balmain and Glebe because that's really crappy too and we've got all these Victorian terraces which are mean, slummy places um, and the only way to properly do this is to start from scratch. Uh, master planning. This is the beginning of master planning in Sydney and it didn't happen because it was just a huge expense to resume and buy all that back and it was going to be a private venture. North City Council, I can't quite work out from what I've read, whether they were for it or against it, or just, you know, it's never going to happen, so we don't have to make a decision. But they did allow Blues Point Tower to be built there, and and that was the only sort of realisation of that scheme. Look up the Parramatta River to Cabarita Point and places, and you will see current manifestations of that type of planning. It's called new urbanism these days, where you just get an industrial site, in that instance the AGL site, and you just tear it all down and you build everything up and I mean the the advantages of that is that everything is purpose built, a lot of people have views there are boat clubs, there are childcare um, centres and all the rest of it and that's what was going to be here, lots of green space in between, that is the modernist utopia and you you need one master planner, one genius to to come up with that and it was was Harry (laughs) but Le Corbusier and other people thought they were the geniuses too when they drew up these schemes in, in Europe that's the way of the post-world world. The other signifier of that shift in the in the identity of the waterway is the, the opera house. Begun by a Labour premier, Joe Carl. In the mid-1950s, decided by 1958, Jorn Utzen, like Edward Bloor, had never come to Sydney but saw this wonderful um, photographs of this wonderful headland and thought that's where I'll put the this extraordinary. Um, building. If you've seen the dozens and dozens of entries in the competition most of them are like triangular not really tall, maybe sort of triangular that way, glass boxes, glass and steel boxes, like classic modernist buildings on the point there. There's one that looks like a big spider from Mars which is pretty wild but that's the most wonderful one and eventually it was built but not before Jornudsen resigned and he never saw his um, completed Opera House, nor was he invited to the opening in 1973. God almighty, not even invited. Um, so what what that represents to me, as well as um, Harry's Blues Point Tower, completed in 61 or 62, uh, is a shift from an industrial, particularly western harbour, to a residential harbour, a harbour of beauty, harbour where views are everything, and that's important. So it's the cultural harbour too. And what, what epitomises that? I still remember Sydney Harbour in the 1980s. I remember having um, fish and Hunter Valley Chardonnay at Doyle's for the first time in the 1980s. I just thought I was in heaven. It was—I <laughs> can't remember what the fish was—but it was so nice. It was really nice. Um, And there's John Dunn's Harbour. And that's the harbour that Japanese were flocking to, buying tea towels and T-shirts with that on it. You've got the two icons. I haven't spoken about the bridge, but... um, Sorry about that. (laughs) Uh, I figured you know that the bridge was built, 1932. When you've got these two symbols together, it immediately brands the harbour. Prior to the Sydney Harbour Bridge, there was no one image that said Sydney Harbour. It was famous, but you couldn't just easily depict it as as an artist. Well, once you've got the bridge, you can do that, and then you combine it with this magnificent thing, and that's that's just fun city. 1988 for the bicentenary, and again in 2000. So that's what we sold the world when, whoops, when we got the, um, the the Olympic Games in 2000. So, and the the Western Waterway becomes a waterway of fun. So there's Darling Harbour, which was once a tangle of train tracks and sheds stacking grain and wool and whatever to go off to the UK, that becomes this you know, wonderful place where Neville Rand, who initiated it for the 1988 bicentenary, said I want a place where people can walk around and enjoy the harbour for the price of an ice cream. And that's a nice democratic sentiment because you couldn't walk around that um, that waterfront before because it was a working waterfront. It was crown land, it was leased which is how the the government got that development going but you know, it wasn't open to everyone because it was a dangerous workplace so that's still there but much else is going to go I understand you know where this is heading and just to compare the two you've seen that photograph already <laughs> there's, there's um, old dirty Darling Harbour and there's fun clean Darling Harbour based on American model uh, from Baltimore, where working waterfronts are becoming redundant across the world, across the Western world. So there are various attempts to redevelop them. What do we turn them into? Well, typically restaurants and all the rest, because you're near the water. Everyone wants to be the water near the water. Everyone wants to eat seafood. Um, so that's what is followed at Darling Harbour. Now, Walsh Bay. Walsh Bay is different. So Walsh Bay happens a decade after Darling Harbour, and Walsh Bay has those finger wharfs, so there is infrastructure there. And thankfully, by the 1990s, there is this thing in planning called adaptive reuse, where you understand the structures that are there, and if you can use them, you do. You don't just tear them down. You don't replace them with all the U-butte glass block boxes of previous generations. So most of the finger wharfs were retained. Seven, is it seven, six, five, six... One of the wharves was too filled with marine borer to be saved, so it was demolished, and that's now the one where you can't walk around it, and it's all the luxury yachts are there. Yeah. But you can walk around all the others, and I've heard that the the money that they got from that <laughs> um, paid for the restoration of a lot of the others, and so it's this cultural precinct, and there are restaurants there, but there's the Sydney Theatre Company was down there for quite a while, and... Um, what's the name, Packer Gallery, or theatre rather, is on the other side of the road. But it's a really cool place. You can walk around all those finger walls whereas you couldn't before. Peter Kingston, one of our local treasures, died this year, um, thought that was not acceptable. You know, that was a compromise too far, and so he painted that. And a Night to Remember is a reference to the, the sinking of the Titanic. And, and there's that, wharf. I can't remember, it's 5'6", I think it's 5'6", which was demolished. So we're heading up to Barangaroo. Oh. Let me quickly say that. The thing about Barangaroo... So Barangaroo is following that pattern. It's the end of the working waterway. What do we do with former industrial sites? It's flagged as, as early as the 1990s by Bob Carr, who has realised that a lot of the leases in Crown land around the harbour are coming up for non-renewal. Um, BP is leaving Berries Bay. Uh, the coal loader site is no longer used after 1992. He gives those to North Sydney Council. They become parkland. What are we going to do with East Darling Harbour? Because the um, container terminal there, which has replaced the Finger Wharves, is going to end in 2004, or is it 6? 2004, I think. So we need we need to start thinking about that now. And a competition, an architectural competition, is um, launched in 2005, and this is the winning design by Talis Hill, Berkmeyer and Irwin. And what it does is make use of the longshore... East Darling Harbour Wharf. I don't know whether you recall when Patrick's were there. Lots of big orange cranes and it was just a sheet of concrete. They'd, they'd knocked down all the finger wharves that you saw in one of those earlier photographs in the 1960s because container technology was the, the way of maritime industry um, and so that's all you needed. You didn't need finger wharves anymore. Well Tallis Hill, Birkmeyer and Irwin did what good responsible architects do. <laughs> And the Post Borough Charter, which is one of the um, Bibles of heritage, you, respects what, you respect what is there and you work with what is there and you only change what is necessary to be changed. So let's work with this concrete platform and build all these pools. Look how many pools are there. Um, and put in greenery. Whoops. Oh, sorry. Come on. And that one... One of the members of the panel that gave it a unanimous decision was Paul Keating, who, oddly enough, once it had won, um, they were kind of shut out within two years. They were asked to modify it because Paul Keating, despite being one of the votes for this, um, really wanted a naturalistic headland. And he wanted it based on the original headland that was there. And so they, they were asked, can you come up with a modification that just shows a naturalistic headland? And they did, but they were, they were literally just shut out of the, um, the process after that. And Paul Keating just kept going and going and going for a naturalistic headland. And they got an American architect, landscape architect called Peter Walker, um, to design it instead. And, and it's very raw with <laughs> Tallis, Hill, Berkmeyer, and Owen. I can tell you after all these years, I, I communicated with them. And this is what Peter Walker came up with, which is not really a naturalistic headland. It was supposed to be something like Ball's Head, and I've walked around there several times, and I... Nah. <laughs> no, it's not working for me. Um, this is when it was just finished, and it was really looking sparkly and lovely. The sandstone's got a patina now, and, and you just can't... These are all in really hard formulaic terraces. It, it doesn't do it for me, and the emphasis was on naturalistic headland. And so Paul Keating, really by force of personality and quite a lot of abuse, um, with which he was very happy to have printed in the newspapers, he, he called, he called um, Tallis, Hill, Birkmeyer and Irwin a bunch of um, kitchen refitters or words along those lines. I mean, holy mackerel. The type of stuff that he did in Parliament, everyone laughed, but, you know, gee whiz. Anyway, um, they lost out and that's what we have. So that's one part of Barangaroo opened in 2015, named around that time by, I suspect, the Barangaroo Delivery Authority. um, There were various options. One was the Hungry Mile, which um, reflected its uh, working-class background. You know, that was an area where waterfront workers had to go and put their hand up for jobs, and if they were lucky, they got one. So it's called the Hungry Mile because they walked up and down a a mile of wharves hoping for work that day. Um, But it didn't get that because... Paul Keating, despite being a, a labour man, really doesn't like industrial heritage. I mean, and he's, he's quite open about it. He wanted to undo the industrial despoliation of the Western Waterway by reinstating a naturalistic headland. He made that very clear. So, no, if there were finger wharves there, he wouldn't have wanted those to stay either. It's all got to go. So that, that wonderful tower, which was the Maritime Services Board observation tower, that came down and... Oh, there's not much left in that sort of western waterway that indicates any type of industry. So let's move on to this one. So this is the other part of Barangaroo that's very controversial. I find the, that one really controversial, by the way. I don't know what you think about it, but I, I don't like the headland. I really don't like this. And this is the one that when my friend read the chapter said oh, you're really quite angry um, This, but, but the two are related because it seems to me that Paul Keating kind of subverted that process and just kept pushing the envelope and despite decisions being made no we've got to do with this we've got to do this and process was second to genius he just referred to his own imagination great you know that's a bit like Napoleon or something else it's just <laughs> dictating um, this was the result of a whole series of modifications um, to a plan that evolved with very little reference to that original winning plan. Um, Lendlease became the sole developer for the whole area, and whereas the Talus Hill uh, scheme had buildings going short at the near the park and getting taller as you go further south, the opposite has happened with this, and Lendlease just kept saying, "Well, we need to do this." What we really need, because the headland costs so much, is to build a hotel over the water. Do you remember that in the Herald? It was about 2009, yeah. And, and um, Richard Rogers, the, the grand architect in the UK, put a model out, and it was a big red... Um, looked like a stack of glass boxes in sort of red girders, and it was called Big Red. And there was a hue and cry about that. Building over the harbour? That's sacrilege. And it got shut down... But who swooped in in 2011 or 12 when, when the decision was, no, you can't build a hotel over the harbour, but a hotel's a good idea. I can see why you need it. It needs to be on land. James Packer and... Um, Barry, Farrell. Barry O'Farrell. Barry But who brought them together? Who's... Alan Jones. Alan Jones. Sorry, that was a name in my mouth. <laughs> you know it better than I do. Thank you. <laughs> Um, Alan Jones brought them together. Who saw that ABC documentary? It's really worth seeing. There was a um, a Four Corners documentary on how this all happened. I'm so glad they did that because it helped me write this chapter. Alan Jones, by that point, no longer worked for 2GB, so I suspect he was suffering from relevancy... um, syndrome. yeah. (laughs) And, And he took the reporter through to his... His um, fantastic East Darling Harbour apartments. So I sat James Packer there and Barry O'Farrell there. We had pies and peed because they're unpretentious men, and they talked about what they wanted to do. And, and Barry O'Farrell came around convinced that we needed a new six-star casino for Sydney to to really put the cream on the cherry or whatever the term is for this global city. And Packer sold it because we need a third icon. You know the the uh, the Harbour Bridge and the and the Opera House aren't enough. And so there's our third icon. Isn't that great? <laughs> um, I'll leave it for questions, but I, have a, I could do a little reading from the book. But how about I open for questions? We've only got five minutes left. That was way too long. Sorry about that. Um, but it's a big story. Sydney Harbour's a big place. Anyway, open it up for questions if you like. Yeah. He was on a design excellence panel Yeah, that that was formed after the competition panel and as far as I can work out it is just force of personality that that meant that his view won out. Jack Mundy was also on the original um, panel and he was appalled by by what transpired. Jack Mundy who helped save the rocks. What's interesting, I don't know whether I made the point well enough, but at East Darling Harbour there was nothing to be adaptively reused. There were no finger walls left. So you have an open slate, but um, Tallis Hill, Birkmeyer and um, oh hell, I forgot the last person's name, Um, were trying to respect and save money because this was supposed to be cost neutral. That whole project was not supposed to cost money. Once the buildings had been built, they were going to pay for that. So they they respected all the, the, the guidelines for the competition, but Keating, it costs $250 million more than it otherwise would have done to put all the sandstone for that big mound at the top. Anyway, so I think it's just Keating being Keating. Yep. Sorry, anyone?
1: Any questions? There's one there. Um, I think one of the biggest things that's happened on Sydney Harbour you showed earlier sailing boats then you showed um, all boats that sort of put out steam and
0: muck yep and you haven't have you covered the I um, do cover the transition I didn't do it today because I'm running out of time but yeah. what, what what did you want to know about that
1: did you have you got the role of the um,
0: steam chips yeah the, chips? Um, yeah In the book? Yes, I do, yeah. In fact, the first steam ferry in Sydney Harbour, which I mentioned, was slipped at Neutral Bay in 1832. Neutral Bay, which was a forest at the time in 1832. The north side was far later to be developed than the south side, but H.G. Smith somehow worked out how to set up a slip and they built the first ferry called The Surprise and there were steam ferries after that, so steam is there changing the smells changing the sound changing the nature of sydney harbour yeah from the 1830s yes. and by the by the end of the 19th century it's on for young and old it's there, there's sail but there's mainly steam hence yes. the coal loader over here which is there I'd to lo- bunker coal
1: I'd yeah. love the coal loader to be that wharf to be
0: restored yeah so would i it's been gazetted oh, state heritage I, I would like it to be restored oh did you say restored or, or taken down? restored out? yeah yeah yes yeah, yeah, me too council oh, would love it yeah it's it was finally state heritage listed last year so that I think compels people to do something whether it'll be restored in its full length which I think is probably a bridge too far excuse oh. my mixed <laughs> infrastructure metaphors we can um, hope yeah you can only hope but it's very cool isn't it
1: apparently yeah. only 14 million it takes
0: I heard 40 14 no but I heard 40 oh, did yeah you? maritime was saying it's 40 million dollars oh. to do that we're not going to do it. Okay. but anyway maybe they will now it's state heritage listed Anybody else <laughs> <laughs> no oh there's one at the back
1: okay, hi I just want to ask you if um, what comments you might have about the um, ocean terminal and the big um, uh, cruise ships that comes into Sydney harbor, and also along circular key I see a line that they say. It's the original coastline and part of it that's um, reclaimed. The, yes. the land's reclaimed. I'm just wondering if there's any uh, rules or um, any control about um, reclaiming land on Sydney Harbour.
0: There probably are rules these days, but they weren't back in the day. So you're quite right. When you walk around Circular Quay these days, look out particularly at East Circular Quay for little brass discs, which will show you the 1844 shoreline and the 1850 something shoreline. 1851 reflects uh, circular key as it was then stone lined, and the early the earlier one is the natural shoreline, which once then curved right up, not too far away from the customs house, the sandstone house, and the Paragon Hotel, um, to where the Tank Stream once fed that cove. So reclaiming Sydney Harbour, reclaiming as if it was ever ours to have, but like building in the harbour was part of the mentality, the engineering mentality of the 19th and 20th century, I suspect it wouldn't be um, trucked these days too much because, you know, for all sorts of reasons, environmental and whatever. The, the, the outcry that happened because of the that hotel over Darling Harbour indicates how, how opinions have changed. You asked a question also about the overseas terminal. Um, and the cruise ships. So those cruise ships are too big to go under the bridge, so they've got to park there. And it was built there in the 1960s for that purpose, so that's, that's what it was built for. It costs $150,000 a day, docking fee for that. How about that? Um, now, the, the cruise terminal at White Bay is only for smaller boutique vessels, and I honestly don't know how many roll up there because you don't see that many. I did see something west of the bridge the other day, which surprised me, but the really big ones, the Princess, the Ruby Princess and... All well, our other favourite ships—they—they <laughs> they stop right in the heart of Sydney and disgorge their their passengers. Yeah, so it's it's been there for a long time, and I I actually don't have a problem with that. Although when they're in, boy, are they in? You know, it's just holy mackerel—they get bigger and bigger, and you can't see that west side of the quay, can you? Yeah. So, well, I I I'm sure there is. Um, I'd like to think that all the the sewerage doesn't, I'm sure it doesn't go into Sydney Harbour, whereas once it might have but yeah, there, there are going to be costs in all, all of those things when the Queen Mary came some 10 or 15 years ago, I saw an aerial photograph of it, in fact I heard a talk by the captain of that at the time and it was so big that when it turned around it was actually gouging out the bottom of Sydney Harbour and you could see this big brown circle at the back so that couldn't have been good for whatever lives on the bottom of Sydney Harbour, but I don't see that so often anymore, that was a Super big one. Yeah, look. Yeah, any time you've got a big... (laughs) Something big that people made, there's going to be an environmental cost. Yeah, it's almost a... Yeah. Mm. Uh,
1: Sorry. How far west does your study of Sydney Harbour go? Good question. Because, of course, the huge amount of pollution of the harbour came from the Homebush area
0: and others. Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks for asking it. I don't go further west than Cockatoo Island, what we generally call the Parramatta River these days, Gregory, Greg, Gregory Blackson wrote a terrific history, like a, a place-by-place history of the Parramatta River, um, and I just didn't want to, I didn't have the word length to go there, um, but the, the point is that it's all the harbour, and the colonists recognised that. They, they didn't name the Parramatta River until the 1830s. It is an estuary. It's part of the harbour. It's, it's tidal. It's It's salt right up until that little creek that formed the whole valley is fresh water up, up in the middle of Parramatta. So technically it is the harbour, and, it's, and Parramatta is at the head of the harbour, but we refer to that as the Parramatta River. Um, so I really had to draw a line. And I didn't also talk too much about Middle Harbour, I've got to say. I, it was like the main stream, but um, I just ran out of words. <laughs> like I've run out of time this afternoon. Oh, do you want I, Well, I. Do you
1: have
0: time? How are you going, Anna? I, okay, I'm going to do a quick. This is the angry bit. Um,
1: <laughs>
0: and some of the concepts are a little bit adult, so you'll have to excuse me. Yeah, I mean, the, the language is formal. Right. I'll see how we go. Yes, thanks for hanging on, Anna. So, the British architectural firm that designed the building remained proud of their achievement despite its notoriety. In 2022, Wilkinson Eyre's website told readers that the tower was inspired by nature in contrast to the mass of elongated oblongs elsewhere in the city. It, quote, its form emanates from three petals that twist and rise together and its sculptural shape maximises the opportunity for accommodation to make the most of the views of Sydney's famous bridge and harbour. Not all welcome Packer's benefaction or the appearance of his edifice, with or without its gaming rooms, that was still up in the air at that time, In the decade after Jane Jacobs' critique of the hubris of modernism, something I've discussed earlier in the book but won't go into now, (laughs) the, the influential urban theorist Henri Lefebvre borrowed from psychoanalysis, anthropology and semiology to equate the architecture of international capitalism with the monumental columns and fetish objects of earlier times. All made manifest the importance of their male designers and owners and all were thereby symbols embodying an alliance between ego and phallus. This masculine potency drove, in Lefebvre's term, political arrogance. The idea of the skyscraper as phallic symbol spread remarkably quickly from the realm of arcane discourse to the vernacular. Accordingly, as it took shape on Sydney's waterfront, Barangaroo Tower was soon nicknamed Packers Pecker. Floral inspiration notwithstanding, the Wilkinson Air design is particularly penile, something that cannot have been lost on designer or client, it seems to me. Possibly, therefore, the billionaire approved the design as an appropriate symbol of his potency. Others might recognise a similarity between this edifice and the extraordinary waterfront buildings at Qatar and Dubai in the Middle East. The latter is an absolute monarchy, the former ruled by an emir with near total authority. In both places, patriarchal power, privilege and immense wealth find architectural expression with scant regard for anything else – In 2022, Dubai was home to the tallest tower in the world. Sydney, however, is the largest city in a liberal democracy, in which transparent process and public interest is supposed to determine development. But arrogance often accompanies power when humility is disregarded and supplicants abound, even in a democracy. Packer's Tower is sculptural, as its designers maintain, and more intentionally suggestive than most of the tower blocks which fill the city. Therefore, another reading of the column atop its podium is as a clenched fist with an elongated middle finger <laughs> held up to those who question its place on the harbour front. The story of Barangaroo, the place, is indeed a lesson in masculine arrogance of which Lefebvre wrote. The redevelopment laid bare the contest between public and private interest, power and process, global and local benefit. The contests were bitter and protracted because by the 21st century, Sydney's beautiful waterway was an amplifier of real estate value as never before. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry to keep you so long. Yeah. I think I'm signing books. If you'd like them, yeah, yeah.
1: We'll be signing books at the back, and you can purchase a copy. Yeah, thanks, everyone. <laughs> thanks again.
0: We hope you have enjoyed spending your time with us. Catch up with more of our audio recordings and relive the discussion, insights, and laughter of Writers at Stanton. To find out more about our other events and programs, please visit www.northsydney.nsw.gov.au library. Thank you for listening.